And we want everybody to follow along so the fellows have some Bibles. Get their attention as they make their way back. If you need a copy of the scriptures, they'll get one to you. So you can follow along as we look at John chapter 19 together today. As we continue our series through the Gospel of John that we've titled Meet Your Maker. For in the pages of the Gospel of John, we meet Jesus Christ as the one who made us and who therefore owns us by right of creation. And now we're coming to the latter chapters of the Gospel of John. And we see that he not only owns us by right of having made us, created us, but he owns us by right of having redeemed us. He has bought us with his own blood. And so in this book, we meet our maker and we meet our savior. I have a book on my shelf I have in my hand, actually. It's titled, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And in this book, James Kennedy, who wrote it, gives a number of aspects of Jesus' life that have impacted our world, and our world would have been quite different had Jesus Christ never been born. This is what he says. Some people have made transformational changes in one department of human learning or in one aspect of human life. And their names are forever enshrined in the annals of human history. But Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, has changed virtually every aspect of human life. He says the whole world counts time as before Christ and A.D., And he goes on to point out that many people in our culture do not know what A.D. stands for. Very often we'll say it's after death. Well, if before Christ means before he was born, and if A.D. means after death, then we're missing about 33 years. A.D. actually means it's Latin for the year of our Lord. And he says it's ironic that the most vitriolic atheist writing A propagandistic letter to a friend must acknowledge Christ when he dates that letter. The atheistic Soviet Union was forced in its constitution to acknowledge that it came into existence in the year 1917, the year of our Lord. And when you see row after row of books at the library, every one of them, even if it contains anti-Christian diatribes, has a reference to Jesus Christ because of the date. And he goes on in the book then to share how Christ and Christianity have had an impact on world history, upon our view of human life, upon our contribution to helping the poor, a contribution to education, the founding of our own country. And on it goes. He has in it this poem with which some of you may be familiar. It's called One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. 
one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All of the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And yet, for all of Jesus' fame and influence on the world, the religion that Jesus founded is symbolized by, of all things, a cross. And without doubt, the cross is the most recognized symbol of Christianity in the world. Now, with someone with all of those accomplishments, why is it? That the Bible, and in 2,000 years since, Christianity, the religion he founded, has for its central symbol a cross. Why a cross? Why not a manger? Or in ancient times, the fish was used to illustrate the faith of Christianity. But only a few would know that the Greek word ichthus, which means fish, is an acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, And Savior. Any number of symbols could have been chosen for Christianity. A carpenter's bench. A stone like the one that was rolled away, leaving the door of the empty tomb exposed. But the universally accepted and recognized symbol of Christianity is the cross. And no other symbol speaks as clearly to the core of our faith as a simple, humble, stark cross. The cross has been cherished and it's been embraced by believers for 2,000 years. And so it seems that from the Bible's perspective, the most crucial question is, what if Jesus had never died? And if the gospel were to be put in poetic form, the poem would be one solitary death. And one of the interesting facts about the gospel accounts of the cross of Jesus is the fact that very little is said about the cross itself. This powerful symbol of what our Lord suffered has little said about the symbol itself and the crucifixion that took place on it. All of the gospel writers simply say this, and they crucified him. Notice in chapter 19. And verse 16, what John says. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Here, they crucified The Greeks and then later the Romans adopted crucifixion as the execution of choice, reserved only for the most heinous of crimes. 
crucifixion was the fate of the murderer or the traitor or the armed robber in Rome, but it could not be a Roman citizen because they would not subject a Roman citizen to this awful kind of torture unless he had betrayed the emperor himself. Even the Romans had their limits and they reserved crucifixion for what they called non-persons. Now, I've heard sermons, as perhaps some of you have, that go into great and gory detail about the act of crucifixion itself. There is no doubt history records for us that it was a torturous and painful way to die. But have you ever noticed that although the Bible gives all sorts of detail about other aspects that surrounded Jesus' death, his betrayal and his arrest and his unjust trial and his humiliation before the soldiers who mocked and beat and spat upon him, though we're given all of those details, all the gospel writers say simply he was crucified. I think the reason for that is that the details of how Jesus died, though important, are less important than why Jesus died. And so we are given in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here John, portraits of the people who conspired to kill Jesus. And we're told of their motives for doing so. And the characters in the that, that are the actors in the drama of redemption, are contrasted with the character of the hero of the story, Jesus himself. And it's in that way that the Bible shows us why Jesus died. It was for our sins. And we see those sins in people like Judas and in people like the religious leaders and the political leaders like Pilate And Herod, in his betrayal and his trial and his execution, we see our sinful motivations for putting him on the cross. And we see his motivation for being willing to go to the cross. And so on this Palm Sunday, we need to ask, why was Jesus killed? Many answers could be given to that question. Verse 16 says... Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And John, who wrote that, uses a particular word that's translated handed him over, which means to deliver up. It was sometimes used to describe a traitorous act. The word is used throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts to describe several persons who were involved in bringing about the death of Jesus. The word is used of Judas when he handed him over to the Jewish leaders. It's used again when the Jewish leaders handed him over to Pilate. And here it's used of Pilate as he handed him over to the Roman soldiers. As we read the story of why Jesus died, we see that he was killed for different motivations by all of these people who handed him over, delivered him up to be killed. Those motivations included greed on the part of Judas, envy on the part of the religious leaders, expedience on the part of Pilate, the Judean governor. And thanks be to God, there is a fourth motivation for which Jesus was delivered up to die. 
He was delivered up by God the Father, who gave him up not for greed, who gave him up not for envy and not for expedience, but he gave him up for love. And today we're going to see, as we remember the circumstances regarding Jesus' death, that Jesus was killed, yes, for envy, for greed, for expedience, but God killed Jesus. God the Father killed him for love. First, let's be reminded that Jesus was killed for greed. Matthew put it this way. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Now, there's that same word. I'm going to give him up. I'm going to deliver him up to you. And so they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to again hand him, deliver him up, hand him over. Judas' name, as you well know, is a synonym that will live forever as one identified with treachery. As all of the four gospel writers list our Lord's disciples, speaking of Judas, they always add the words, who betrayed him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each gives us a list of the twelve, and they all put Judas' name last. Now, have you ever considered the fact that what Judas did here was in the plan of Almighty God. That what he did was absolutely no accident and no quirk of history. And so the question then becomes, how then can Judas be held accountable? Why blame Judas? He's just a victim of God's plan. But hear this. We can no more argue that Judas bore no responsibility for the deeds that he committed because they were ordained of God, then we could argue that Jesus did not voluntarily die in our place because that too was foreordained of God. Jesus voluntarily, as an act of His will, gave Himself up for our sins. And Judas, as an act of His will for which He is responsible, carrying out the plan of Almighty God in a mystery ultimately only known in the mind of God is held accountable for his actions. Here's what Luke says about the interaction of those two issues. He says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And yet the Scriptures tell us in Psalm 41 that it was ordained that it would come to pass. How do I go back? Thank you. Psalm 41 and verse 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Prophesied hundreds of years before it actually took place. A few weeks ago, we considered in John chapter 13, the meal that Jesus shared with the twelve on the night before he was crucified. And in that night, in that meal, Jesus made one last expression of love and grace, and he directed it to Judas. The scriptures simply say that Jesus dipped bread in the bowl and he gave it to Judas. 
And I reminded you at that time that in those days, the host of a feast would at some point take a piece of bread, dip it into the common bowl and extract a special tasty morsel and give it to a friend. And in that culture, it was an expression of great friendship. And so Jesus dips the bread and he extends it to Judas. But Judas was a thief. And in the end, he cared more for money than he cared for the Lord of heaven. And he took the bread from Jesus' hand and then he got up and he went out to make the final arrangements with the priests with whom he had bargained to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a common slave. As Judas departed the room in John 13, John added one of those touches of color that's more than just an incidental detail. He says that Judas went out and then adds, and it was night. And in all of John's writings, whenever he speaks of night, he's describing something with moral overtones to it. There was a darkness that filled Judas' soul as he went out to lead the soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he handed Jesus over for death. There was treachery in the kiss that Judas gave to Jesus, the sign of a friend who was, in fact, a betrayer. So Judas gave Jesus over to the leaders of the Jewish people. And consequently, we might answer the question, then why was Jesus killed? Well, it was because of the betrayal of Judas, who did it for greed. But there's another way you could answer it, and I have it for you in your outline. Jesus was also killed for envy. So apparent were the motives of the religious leaders of the Jews that even Pilate, the Roman governor, could see through them. Matthew says this in Matthew 27. Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him, Pilate. Now, because of tragedies of history like the Holocaust, Many people shy away from mentioning the culpability of Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, in handing him over to death. But the New Testament writers never winced. They never shied away from that accusation. Shortly after the day of Pentecost, in the fifth book of your Bible, the book of Acts, Peter, who was himself a Jew, preached to the Jews. And here's what he said on that occasion. Men of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You and notice the phrase again, handed him over. You delivered him up to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he, Pilate, had decided to let Jesus go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, said Peter. And they themselves knew that to be true. They had plotted his death. And when Pilate wanted to release him, they protested. And here's what they said. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And so they envied Jesus. And because they envied Jesus, they were willing to give him up for death. They were envious because they were prideful. Envy and pride are two sides of the same coin. One is never envious of others who's not first proud of himself. The Jewish leaders that day were proud men, both racially and nationally. 
They were proud religiously and morally. And here comes Jesus, who through his preaching peeled back the thin veneer of respectability that they maintained, and he revealed the filth of their hypocrisy within. And instead of being stricken and convicted with sorrow that leads to repentance, they hated Jesus for it. As they thought to themselves, who does he think he is? Who is this Galilean? Nobody comes here without first going to one of our schools and touting our line. How dare he speak as he does to us? How dare he profane our holy days? And as you read about them, you see very clearly they cared more for regulations than they cared for people. And they cared more for ceremonial cleansing than for true moral purity. They cared more for their man-made laws than they cared for love. And so they delivered Jesus up to Pilate to have him crucified. So why was Jesus crucified? Well, we could say it was for the greed of Judas or the envy of the religious leaders. But the Bible gives us yet another answer to that. And it's the expedience that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, saw in this. After the religious leaders had put pressure on him, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, as we read in verse 16 of John 19. The gospel writers seem to imply that the soldiers themselves, who merely carried out orders, had no extraordinary blame attached to their actions. But Pilate was culpable. We saw last week that he was appointed governor by Emperor Tiberius. He served in Palestine for about 10 years. History tells us he was a capable administrator. But he and the Jews, and particularly the religious leaders, had great animosity and mutual contempt. He had a hot temper. He was known for violence and for cruelty. We saw that Pilate made a number of errors including an attempt to set up banners all throughout Jerusalem with images of the emperor whom the subjects of Rome were to worship that violated God's command to have graven images. He engaged in a great building program. He created an aqueduct to bring waters from the pools of Solomon into the heart of the city, but he raided the temple treasury in order to make that happen. As a result, there were riots. And consequently, He's left in a tenuous relationship with Rome, who was worried about his governorship and things getting out of hand. He feared for his career, even his life. And we saw last week that he was challenged with the words by the Jewish religious leaders, if you don't crucify this man, you are no friend of Caesar. The scriptures are clear that Pilate understood that Jesus was innocent. No less than four times and in four different ways, he tried to set aside the issue and get out of the responsibility to make a declaration. You remember what he did? Four different things. Upon hearing that Jesus was a Galilean, he said it was out of his jurisdiction, and so he sent him to Herod. And Herod would have nothing to do with it, so Pilate then tried some half measures. So secondly, he had him beaten and tried, and he hoped that he could release him on that basis. And then thirdly, he tried to personally appeal to the crowds, offer them a choice to release to them Jesus or a notable criminal named Barabbas. He was thinking they would want Jesus because Barabbas was so notorious. Instead, they said, give us Barabbas. 
And finally, Jesus tried, or excuse me, Pilate tried to protest his innocence. And he washed his hand in water, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. But before his hands were dry, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. And so why was Jesus killed? Well, we could say it was the greed of Judas or the envy of the religious leaders or the expedience and cowardice of Pilate. But here's what the Bible says. This man was handed over, delivered up, given up by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Why was Jesus killed? It involved the, envy, the greed of Judas and the envy of the religious leaders and the expedience and cowardice of Pilate. But most important, Jesus came into this world. Jesus was born to die by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God, motivated by love, God the Father, sent the Son who volunteered to be the sacrifice for our sins. And so all of these people, Judas, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, they all conspired together in their wickedness. But all the while, they're accomplishing the eternal plan of the sovereign God. And you have indications of this throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus repeatedly spoke of what he called his hour. I came to accomplish a task, but my hour is not yet here, he would say. On the eve of Jesus' death, he revealed to his disciples, tomorrow I will die, for my hour is come. It was the purpose for which Jesus came. He was conscious of the fact that every footstep that he took hastened him to the fulfillment of God's set plan, and that plan would nail him to a cross. We also see in Jesus' sayings from the cross that this was no accident. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, nearing the end of his ordeal, Jesus cried famously and blessedly, It is finished. And through the century, some skeptics have said that Jesus in despair was crying out, my life is over. What does it come to? But the word that our Lord Jesus uttered is one Greek word that some of you are familiar with. Translated, it is finished. It is tetelestai. And tetelestai comes from a root that means to achieve a goal. Jesus says, I've achieved the goal. And his words are in a particular tense that says, I've achieved a goal that's going to have lasting results. Tetelestai, it, the goal for which I have come, is now accomplished. And sometimes this word is translated in your Bible, complete or perfect. And I can imagine the word upon the lips of a priest who on the Day of Atonement examines a sacrifice to make sure it had no blemish, no imperfections of any kind. And upon examining that lamb, he would declare, Tetelestai, it is perfect. And I can imagine the words on the lips of an artist who takes his brush and he applies it to the canvas one last time. 
And he steps back and he sees there's nothing else to be added. And he would say, Tetelestai, it's complete. But this word takes on its most profoundest meaning on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. When having completed the purpose for which he was sent upon the cross, he lifts his head and he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's complete. I've accomplished what the Father has sent me to do. So why was Jesus killed? Yes, it involved greed. Yes, it involved envy. Yes, it involved expedience. But it was the mission for which he came, sent by the love of the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life. And that's why Paul could say in the book of Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. You notice that phrase again? Delivered him up. Gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you have come to Jesus Christ, and you know him as your maker, but also as your redeemer, as your savior, you are among most, all men and women, most blessed. He did not spare his own son for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Now, you may notice in the outline that the outline says we killed Jesus for greed. And we killed Jesus for envy. And we killed Jesus for expedience. The immediate actor in the greed was Judas. The immediate actor in the envy were the religious leaders. The immediate actor in the expedience was Pontius Pilate. And yet I say throughout the outline, we gave up Jesus. We killed Jesus for greed and envy and expedience. We need to, friends, come to grips with the fact that it was we. It was I, it was you, who put Jesus on that cross. You look at guys like Judas, you look at the religious leaders, you look at the Roman soldiers, you look at the cowardice of Pilate, and you think to yourself, I would never do that. But you need to remember something. You're looking at this 2,000 years later. You're able to read what happened. You know who it was to whom it was happening. These guys were in the immediacy of the moment. And so their envy, like all sinful envy, was raised up in the hearts of these religious leaders. Greed, like all human greed, rises up in the heart of Judas in those moments. Expedience, pragmatism, cowardice that we've all displayed, is exhibited in this man, Pontius Pilate. Let me ask you, do you ever tell white lies? By the way, I have no earthly idea what a white lie is. See, in the Bible, there are just lies. 
And there's not Judas greed, there's just greed. And there's not Jewish envy, there's just envy. And there's not Pilate expedience, there is just expedience and cowardice. And if you have ever displayed any or all of those, and if you're honest, you have, then if you are in those circumstances, the only thing necessary is the opportunity for you to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. We killed him for envy and for greed and for expedience. You know, when a prosecutor prosecutes a case, he tries to prove that the defendant has both the motivation and the means. And the Bible teaches very clearly that we have the motivation. We're motivated by greed and by envy and by expedience. We simply don't have the means. We're not there to do it. But if we were, but for the grace of God, we too would have put Jesus physically on that cross. Spiritually, we did put him on the cross. Because of our sins. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, none of the rulers of this age. And when he says none of the rulers of this age, he's referring to those religious leaders. He's referring to Herod and Pilate, those political leaders. None of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's what he says. And so understand, friends, when we read of the envy and the greed and the expedience, we need to see ourselves in those actions. And we may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but the attempt is as futile as his was. There is, I am sorry to say, but I must say, there is blood on my hands and upon your hands. And before we can see the cross as something done For us, we have to see the cross as something done by us. Do you hear that, friends? Before we can see it as something done for us by the love of God, we have to see that the cross was something perpetrated by us and by our sin, our envy, our greed, our expedience. And in turn, then, That leads us to faith and worship. We must first come to the place where we see it as something done by us. And that realization lead us to repentance. And that's the ultimate goal for which Jesus came. Why did Jesus die? The love of God put him there. Ultimately for you. For me. So that seeing our own sin borne by him on the cross, we would be stricken in heart. We would look at the Lord of glory, God, come in the flesh to do this thing for us, to make this payment for our sin. And we would recognize the blackness, the heinousness of our sin. We would throw away the silly and dangerous notion. That somehow I can do something or some things to recommend myself to God. If that were possible, would you agree? Then Jesus didn't have to come 
to be crucified. The mere fact that God has come to die for your sins shows that there's nothing you could do to pay for your sins. And he came so that you would see that. He came to pay for your sin. Your sin, my sin, put him there. And what we are to see in the Lamb given up, sacrificed for us, is that we are hopeless and helpless before God. And we come to him then with empty hands and we receive the payment that Jesus Christ has made for us on the cross. And we cease looking at Judas and Pilate and the religious leaders as if they are in a separate category of like really bad guys. And we understand that all of the bad guys and bad gals are just like the bad guys and bad gals in this room. And we come to him and receive him as our Savior and bow before him as our Lord. Now, we're going to, as we do every week, we are going to bow before our God. We're going to pray. And every week we have a different mix of people here. I'm thankful for those of you that are here for the first time. Some of you I don't know. I'm glad you're here. But I do not know your relationship with Jesus Christ. And in any group, there are only two kinds of people. Only two. The people who have come to Jesus and received him as Savior and been transformed thereby. And those who have not. That's it. Two kinds. Many of you have done that. I have done that. I've done that because he was merciful to me and moving upon my heart at the age of 19 and drew me to himself in his mercy and grace. And my life has not been the same since. Many of you have come to him in different circumstances at different times, some for a year, some for 20 years, some for 30 years. But you've come to the foot of the cross. We've all come to the same place. Perhaps some of you have not. And so when we bow, there are going to be two kinds of prayers from two different kinds of people. There's going to be the prayer of gratitude and recommitment on the part of those of us who have come to Jesus as Savior and bowed before him as our Lord. And I trust there's going to be the prayer of the person who for the first time has come to grips with the fact That my sin put him there. That it's my envy and my greed and my expedience. And fill in whatever sin you want that put Jesus on the cross. That he died for me. And when we bow, you are going to be praying to receive him as your Savior. Asking him to forgive you. To apply his sacrifice given on the cross to you personally. And you commit to following him with your life. And so what does it mean to do? Realize you're a sinner. Recognize what we've talked about today, what Jesus did on the cross. Repent of your sin. Lord, I want to follow you. Go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ. When we bow in just a moment, you pray from your heart to God. Not a formula. This is a sample prayer. From your heart to God, I acknowledge my sin. I believe you are the one who delivers, who saves, that you paid the penalty for my sin. And I ask you to forgive me. And I give you my life. I want to follow you with it. Let's bow before the Lord.
Father, we thank you for this look into this disturbing and yet blessed passage of Holy Scripture. Lord, it's disturbing because we see the cruelty of sinful humanity to the precious Son of God. He who had no sin, he who had been pronounced innocent, was nevertheless executed by sinful men and consented to by sinful women. We look at this drama and we know all that it's about because we have your completed word. But Lord, help us always to remember that those involved in the heat of the moment didn't know all that we do. And so in their sin, their envy was manifest. Their greed was manifest. Their expedience and cowardice was displayed. Just like I show greed and envy and expedience in moments where I'm challenged, when I'm put in a difficult spot so that I can save face, so that I can get what I want, so that I can pursue self-interest. And so, Lord, I'm convicted. I'm stricken to the heart as I look at what was done to the Lord of glory because I recognize that I put Jesus there. And that had I been there, but for the grace of God, I would have nailed him to that cross. And so Jesus died for my sins. But I thank you that your spirit has moved upon my heart so that I embrace the lamb and I see his sacrifice as indeed for me, motivated by the love of God the Father. And, and brought into reality because God the Son voluntarily came to earth to give his sinless life so that I would not die an eternal death in hell. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to live with the strength that you provide worthy of the calling that you have given to everyone who names the name of Jesus. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that right now in this moment they're recommitting themselves to the Lord of glory who was crucified for them. And Lord, I pray for any dear soul who is here right now who has never placed their faith and trust in the one and only way to have a relationship with you, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that they are coming to you right now that they are breathing a prayer to you from their heart to the God of heaven, acknowledging their sin, acknowledging Jesus as the only payment for their sin, and asking you to forgive them and committing their lives to you. Lord, I pray that they will know the joy of being a child of the true and living God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you, Lord, for this disturbing yet blessed message. We thank you for the difference it has made and is continuing to make in our lives. And we thank you for the work that you are doing in those that are just coming to you in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.